But, um, but a dear friend of mine, I've known him for many years, and uh, he's a pastor down in Roseville, California at Calvary Metro, and uh, he is the pastor over the Equip Pastors College, and uh, so we're excited today as he teaches us uh, John chapter 3. So come on up, Chris. Well, we did have a phenomenal time, and, and uh, I was telling Rory and the guys yesterday that um, I don't think I've ever been to a men's retreat where there was that much camaraderie between men, where they genuinely enjoyed one another, and they loved being together, and it was, it was a wonderful time. Um, I, can, I have to confess, yesterday, some of you guys that were with us when we were shooting yesterday don't know this, but um, we went to to shoot and I was sitting down in a chair and I had earplugs in and I fell asleep for 25 minutes <laughs> during that mayhem and uh, I woke up and I turned to the guy next to me I'm like dude I fell asleep he goes yeah I know <laughs> but we had a sweet time and, um, and it was really cool this morning as I got up and I, and I opened my Bible and my Bible opened up to Hebrews chapter 12 we camped out in Hebrews chapter 12 and immediately the smell of the campfire came off the pages and it was, it was really cool. And I pray that that smell never leaves my Bible. Um, because it was such a sweet, memorable time with you guys. And I want to thank you so much for uh, allowing me to be there. And for allowing the Holy Spirit to do a work in your lives. And um, it was awesome. So, I love you guys. <laughs> Go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 3 this morning. I'm going to see how this works on Rory's block of wood that's up here. John chapter 3. Um, Rory said I can do anything I want while I'm here, so I'm going to have you guys stand while we read this passage in John chapter 3. Um, if you guys don't know, back when uh, Jesus was uh, on the earth and the rabbis would teach in the synagogues, the people would stand. There were no chairs. The people would stand the entirety of the teaching, and the pastor would sit. And so in just a moment, I'm going to ask the ushers to come through and just remove all your chairs. And <laughs> No, just kidding. Verse 1 of John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Father, this morning we come before you. And we ask, Lord, that you would meet us in this place. We thank you for your word that tells us that we're two or more gathered together to seek you, to worship you. You promise to be in our midst, Lord. 
We thank you for the promise of your word that tells us that you inhabit the praises of your people. And Lord, we, we spent time this morning worshiping you, and we desire to continue to worship you as we study your word. We pray and ask your Holy Spirit would meet us in this place, would fill our hearts, would give us ears to hear, hearts that are ready to receive. And Lord, that you would have your way within us today. Jesus, would you win the day today? Would you magnify your name in our lives, in this church, in this community? Would you help us to make much of you? As husbands, to make much of you in our homes. As wives, to make much of you. Even as, as the children are in the back of the building, Lord, would you teach them to make much of Jesus, we pray. And Lord, I pray and ask this morning that you would overlook my inadequacies as a teacher, as a man, that you would bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Back in 2000, I can still vividly recall the excitement and the surprise that I, heard, that I felt when I heard then-presidential, uh, our president, um, George W. Bush, announce on national television that he was a born-again Christian. You guys remember that? When he made that announcement, I remember sitting and thinking, wow, can you believe that? God's man in the White House. It was a remarkable time. Historical. But today, my response is not quite the same. <laughs> the word born again has been used to describe anything and everything but what God had intended it to mean and represent. In fact, um, in the year 2009, George Barna, if you're not familiar with the Barna Group, it's, a widely, it's widely considered to be the leading research organization that focuses on the intersection between faith and culture. And in 2009, the Barna Group issued a report that said that 85% of Americans say that they are Christians. 8 out of 10 say they're Christians. And 46% stated that they would consider themselves to be born again. That's one out of two Americans consider themselves to be born again. This phrase, born again, has been hijacked. And it's been used to describe anything and everything from a celebrity makeover to a person who's reinventing themselves to companies who were once on the brink of collapse that are now experiencing upturns of prosperity and success. And a while ago, I remember reading a Los Angeles Times article about an athlete who was making a comeback. And the title of the article was, The Stealer Who Was Born Again. And years ago, Larry Flint, the publisher of the pornographic magazine Hustler, proclaimed that he was born again. And even today, with our current national and civic leaders espousing how important their faith is, needless to say, I'm less than optimistic. One of the greatest of all biblical terms has been stolen and emptied of its meaning and dragged through the mire so that today, born again can mean almost anything or absolutely nothing. And we, the church, especially the Western church today, need to rescue it and return it to its proper place. And here in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, it relates our Lord's classic conversation with a man named Nicodemus, in which he explained what he meant by being born again. And it's here that we find the essentials, the non-negotiables of being born again. And in verse 1 we read, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things or do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
In order for us to understand what is happening here um, in our, our survey section this morning, we need to look at the context, the setting uh, in particular. The word now, in fact, ties together chapter 2 and chapter 3. The historical context of chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, is actually found in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 2. It's here that Jesus had attended the Passover and the seven days of unleavened bread that followed. And it was during those days that Jesus performed a number of miracles. We can read about that in verse 23 of chapter 2. That stimulated significant interest in him as a person. And here John records the encounter of one man who was moved by the signs that he saw, by the wonders that he experienced to learn more about Jesus. In verse 1, we're introduced to this man. His name is Nicodemus. And we learn three important factors about him, three important facts. Number one, we learn that he was a religious man. Notice in verse 1, it tells us that he was a Pharisee. And Pharisees were made up of 6,000 6, men, of the most fanatical men of Israel, concerning their faith. They represented the orthodox core of Judaism. Highly zealous for ritual, highly zealous for religious purity, according to the law of Moses and the oral traditions. These guys were serious, and they were known for their seriousness. They were so earnest about their faith that on the Sabbath, they would carry no more than the weight of one dried fig, and they would carry no more than one swallow of milk, lest by chance they must somehow um, break the Sabbath rest. They were serious about their faith. We also learn about this man that he was a powerful man. Verse 1 tells us that he was a ruler of the Jews. He was one of 70 members of an elite Jewish group called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the ruling council of Israel at the time, kind of like our high supreme court. And these were the most powerful, influential men in all of Israel. They had jurisdiction over every single Jew in the entirety of the earth. And one of their duties was to examine and deal with anyone suspected of being a false prophet. And the third fact that we see about this man is found in verse 10. We see in verse 10 that he was an educated man. We read that he was a teacher of Israel. Not only was he a teacher of Israel, he was considered to be the teacher in Israel, the master teacher, perhaps considered the greatest teacher in Jerusalem. Nicodemus was a renowned scholar and theologian and professor in Israel on Old Testament matters. He was nobody's fool. He was an educated man and an aristocrat. And so these three things, his earnestness, his position, his education, coupled with the fact that he was ultimately, he did respond to Jesus, did come to faith in Jesus. We read about that in John chapter 7 and John chapter 19. Make this man's life a perfect case study for learning about the essentials of salvation. And so here he comes. And verse 2 tells us he meets Jesus for the very first time. And he comes to him at night. And why did Nicodemus want to come to Jesus at night? Because he wanted a private meeting with him. This was a man that had everything to lose by meeting with this prophet. Wealth, position, standing, power, influence. He didn't want his colleagues in the Sanhedrin to find out that he was meeting with Jesus. And so he came at night. Despite his wealth. Despite all the amazing dedication and zeal for religion, despite his knowledge about the Old Testament, despite his power, Nicodemus was a man who was empty. He discovered that none of those things gave him life, gave him fulfillment. He was left wondering what else must he do to be acceptable before God. And so he comes in the night. 
And this is what he says to Jesus in verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And as Nicodemus approaches Jesus, he came respectfully. He used a title of respect, rabbi, which means teacher, master. He was prepared for an exchange of philosophical ideas. He was not prepared for what were to follow. Jesus immediately cuts him off and goes straight to the heart of the matter. And in one glorious instant, the vocabulary of our faith was given one of the greatest concepts ever given to man. This concept of being born again. Notice what it says in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus came to Jesus wanting to know who he was, where he was from, and where he was going. And Jesus then turns the tables on him and says to him, You came to me asking where I am going. But the real question you should be asking is, Nicodemus, where are you going? And with startling abruptness, Jesus introduces the topic of their discussion for this one-on-one conversation with Nicodemus, the issue of the new birth. And in verse 3, Jesus stated, as a matter of fact, the necessity of this thing. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, there are three observations that we want to take notice of here. If you're taking notes Um, The first observation is the condition of the statement. The condition of the statement that Jesus gives us here in verse 3. Jesus says this, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The conjunction unless means except on condition of. So if you're taking notes, write that in the margin of your Bible. Circle unless and then write in the margins of your Bible, except on condition of. In other words, what Jesus was saying is that no one can see the kingdom of God except on the condition of being born again. The second observation we see is the subject of the statement. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, Jesus said. Notice those words, born again. Those words emphasize the the issue that Jesus is trying to press into this man who came to him. The issue of new birth. In the Greek, it's actually translated born from above. These words emphasize the spiritual nature of this new birth. And with these two points in mind, we understand the words born again to literally mean born again from above. And so again, circle that And the margins of your Bible write, born again from above. This is what John referred to in John chapter 1 and verses 12 and 13 when he penned this. But to all who believed in him, speaking of Jesus, and accept him, he gave the right, the privilege, to become the children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Unless one is born again, born again from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. God's kingdom involves a king who rules. A kingdom where people are ruled. A sphere where his rule is recognized. Where his presence and his fullness abide. A place where those that abide with him are the recipients of and the benefactors of his benevolent grace and goodness. And notice the third observation, that those who are not born again, 
those who do not experience a new birth that comes from God, he says, they cannot see the kingdom of God. The word see in the Greek is literally experience. They cannot experience the kingdom of God. And this verse parallels verse 5 where Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And the point is clear. Jesus wanted Nicodemus to know, and he wants us to know. He doesn't want us to miss this truth. Only through a new birth can a person enter into, and only through a new birth can a person experience God's kingdom. So how does Nicodemus respond to this? Verse 4, he says this, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time to his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus was perplexed. He was confused. But he wasn't clueless as to what Jesus was saying. He wasn't proposing some crude gynecological miracle. He was putting forth his deep sense of longing. He was revealing what was in his heart. What was really there. And his response reveals his great yearning. How, he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. In a sense, he's revealing his heart and he's saying, Lord, I hear what you're saying. I hear you talking about being born again. You talk about that radical fundamental change that is so absolutely necessary for anyone who would follow hard after you. I know it's necessary. But the question I have is how? There is nothing I would like more. But you might as well tell me as a full-grown man that I need to go back into my mother's womb and be born all over again. How I long for this thing that you speak of, Jesus. But how? How does it happen? Alfred Lord Tennyson, I believe, captured the heart of Nicodemus with these words. He wrote, Oh, for a man to rise in me, that the man that I am might cease to be. How can a person be born again? That is the cry of mankind. There's something within us that desires to change. There's something deep down within us that desires to be different than we are, to think differently, to speak differently, to act differently, to love differently. We want new minds and new personalities. We want to be born again. But it is as difficult as if we were to have to go back into our mother's womb all over again. And there are some of us here this morning that are like Nicodemus. Do you want change? Are you tired of falling into the same patterns? The same habits? Thinking the same thoughts? Doing the same things? Do you want your life to be renewed? Do you want to know what it means to be born again? To understand how it can really happen? How it can truly happen in your life? You've heard that phrase. You've heard it spoken from this pulpit. You've read it in your Bible. But you want to know how. How can that happen in my life? Well, in verses 5 and 7, Jesus tells us how. 5 through 7, he tells us how we can be born again. And Jesus answers Nicodemus' question by saying this in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. 
Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. This phrase, unless one is born of water and spirit, is misunderstood so often to be um, directing us toward water baptism. It has nothing to do with water baptism. And many times I've taught this, I've usually asked the question, how many of you guys think it's talking about water baptism? And usually half the people will raise their hand. It has nothing to do with water baptism. Water baptism does not save. We know this from Jesus and his encounter with the thief on the cross, right? In Luke 23. Lord, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus said, I tell you this, from this day forward, you'll be with me in paradise. No baptism. I remember sharing this with a Catholic one time, and she said, that's a terrible argument. And I said, that's the best argument. How about in Acts chapter 16? The centurion, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. No baptism. None at all. Or even Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be what? Saved. saved. You shall be baptized? No. Baptism doesn't say this verse has nothing to do with baptism. What Jesus is talking about is a natural birth. He's making a distinction between a natural birth and a spiritual birth. Look at the context, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Right on the heels of verse 5. He talks about born, you know, being born of water and being born of the spirit. Verse 6. That which is flesh is flesh, and that which is of spirit is spirit. He's making a distinction. He actually explains what he's saying in verse 6 about what he said in verse 5. In other words, there exist two kinds of birth. There's a physical birth and there's a spiritual birth. And those of you who are, uh, who are moms understand this concept probably better than us fathers do. Because during pregnancy, your child floats around in your stomach in amniotic fluid, don't they? And, and during delivery, that water is then expelled. And that child is literally born of water. The expression of water is used here as a figure of the physical birth. And in context, the phrase born of water refers to a natural physical birth. And this is the point. The point is that a person has to be naturally born first before they can ever be born again from above. Born of water refers to a physical birth, whereas born of the spirit refers to a spiritual birth. The first birth brings life into this world. And the life that Jesus is now speaking to Nicodemus about brings life into the next. And this is why it's so essential, why it's so absolutely essential that we are born again. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 5, if you're taking notes, verse 12, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned, if you skip down to verse 19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. In physical birth, we inherit the sinful nature of Adam. That's what Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 5. Ephesians 2.3 even goes farther and says this, By our very nature, we are worthy and deserving of God's wrath. We have inherited a sinful nature. But in order to be able to become the children of God, we need to inherit the sinless nature of Christ. 
And in spiritual birth, we're imputed the righteousness of Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about here in verse 19 of Romans 5. For as by one man's obedience, or excuse me, disobedience, many were made sinners. By one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. We're imputed the righteousness of Christ through a spiritual birth. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. For God the Father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we, that you, that I, might become the righteousness of God in him. Because we're born as sinners, we need, we need, we need to be born again in order to be righteous before God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. This phrase, born of the Spirit, teaches us that the new birth is the regenerating work of God in the life of a believing sinner. This understanding is clearly supported throughout Scripture. Ezekiel 36, verse 25, paints this understanding of what God does when we're reborn. He says this in verse 25 of Ezekiel 36, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take out of you the heart of stone and put within you a heart of flesh, and, and, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. That is the regenerating work of God in the life of a believer. God changes us, transforms us, renews our mind, how we think, renews our heart, how we behave, how we live. That's a work of God. Only God can do that. That is a picture of new birth. God removing a heart of stone out of our flesh and giving us a heart of flesh. Putting his spirit within us, causing us to walk in his statutes and giving, allowing us to keep his judgments and doing them. And from John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13, we learn that the moment a sinner starts to trust in Jesus Christ as his one and only Savior, that he experiences an immediate regenerating work of God in his life. He says this, but to all who believed in him, to all who have accepted him, he has given the right to become the children of God. They are reborn. There's that picture of John chapter 3. They're reborn, heart of stone removed, replaced with the heart of flesh, renewed, transformed. Not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. And in verse 7, Jesus says this, Do not marvel at this. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. You need a new nature. You need a new nature. When I got saved, I, I grew up in a... CNE Catholic home, Christmas and Easter at best. And I went off to college, and, and uh, I went off to college, and my, I grew up in a military home, very strict, very structured home. And when I got off to college, I just spread out, and I went nuts. And it was going to take a work of God, 
Um, the kind of guy that I was, just to give you a picture of what was happening in my life, not to glorify sin by any means, but I was the kind of guy that was so angry at the world that I would go to frat parties, and I would enter those frat parties, and I would put my back against the wall, and I would look at the room, and the first guy that made eye contact with me, I would walk across the room and punch him in the face. I was mad. It was going to take either a miracle to change me, or it was going to take prison. Flat out. And I remember the day that Michelle and I, my wife, my beautiful wife, for uh, this is our 19th year of marriage. And um, it's a miracle. This is a miracle. Because when we first met, we could not stand one another. I'm not kidding. I don't know if loathe is the right word. It's even appropriate for this. We could not stand one another. God is a miracle worker. 19 years later, she's my best friend. I would rather do dude stuff with her than anybody else. And, um, but I remember she invited me to come to a concert that her friend was involved in up in Portland. And I went begrudgingly. It was, a, it was a Christmas time, and I went to this concert, and we're sitting up in the nosebleed section, the balcony section of this church. It's filled with people. There's probably 2,000 people there, easy. 2,000 people. We're way up top, you know, where no one can see us. You don't have to shake anybody's hand. It's great, right? <laughs> and, um, and I'm looking down, and there's a 50-person choir, and there's a 50-person orchestra, and there's five of these giant Christmas trees all decked out, and we're singing Christmas songs, and I'm singing them. You know, and all of a sudden something happened. And I, I remember sitting there thinking, whoa, these songs are telling a story. How could I sing these songs my entire life and never realize it's telling a story about God? And God was totally ministering to me through Christmas songs. And after the concert was over, the pastor comes up. And he gives an altar call. And I thought, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm like, this is dumb. Who would ever respond to that? And he's down there, and then I'm way up here. I'm thinking, well, at least he, you know, I'm up here. I'll be totally fine. And he says, if you want to receive Jesus in your heart, raise your hand. I'm thinking, who would do that? So dumb. <laughs> and I literally said to myself, what are you doing? And I look down, and he sees me, and he goes, I see you up there. I'm like, dang it. <laughs> and then he says, pray after me. And I start praying. And I had a physical experience. As I'm praying these words, he says, repeat after me. He says them, and I say them. And all of a sudden, my chest, my heart is pounding so hard. It felt like my heart just, just filled the entire cavity of my chest. And as I'm praying and my heart is beating, my body is shaking. I had no idea what was going on. I'm freaking out. And I remember thinking, something is happening to me. And I said, amen, and I sat back in my chair, and I felt exhausted. You know, like when you go through one of those really stressful times, and there's like a lot of pressure and a lot of weight, and then all of a sudden it's over, and you're just like, why does want to sleep for like a week? That's how I felt. And I got in the car with Michelle afterwards, and she had no idea that I had prayed. I'm sitting right next to her, and I go, she goes, what do you think? And I go, something weird happened. <laughs> and she goes, what? And I go, I don't know. 
I didn't tell her because I didn't, I didn't know what to say. What if she thinks I'm insane? You know? And it wasn't until a couple weeks later that I came across Ezekiel 36. And I found Ezekiel 36 and I said, that's what happened to me. That was it. God took from me, removed from me a heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh and put his spirit within me. That was in 1992. Christmas of 1992. Filled a new birth. We need it. We absolutely need it. Jesus says you must be born again. The word must makes the new birth an imperative condition to entering into the kingdom of God. It denotes the logical and absolute necessity of a new birth. There is no entering. Make no mistake. Don't deceive yourselves. There is no entering into the kingdom of God. There is no experiencing the kingdom of God without this thing. Without the new birth. You must be born again. And having set forth the necessity of the new birth, Jesus begins to illustrate the mystery of this miraculous phenomenon. And he gives us an analogy between the wind and everyone who is born of God. Listen to what it says here, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Interesting statement. Interesting comparison. Wind. Spirit. And even though the wind gives evidence of its existence visually and audibly, no one knows its origin. No one knows where it's going to or where it's coming from. No one doubts its existence, do they? Because we all have seen it and experienced its existence. The evidence of its power, the evidence of its influence. In the same way, Jesus as a new birth gives evidence of itself. But the natural man knows neither the origin of the spiritual life nor the final destination of those who are born again. Because God's work of regeneration cannot be explained by natural laws like wind. It has evidences, but it cannot be explained. And here's the point. There exists undeniable, unmistakable evidence of the new birth in a person's life in everyone who's born of the Spirit. Francis Chan wrote a book called The Forgotten God. Anyone ever read that book, Forgotten God by Francis Chan? I encourage you guys to read it. It's a radical book. Or as the guys at, at, at the men's retreat like to make fun of me, it's a rad book. <laughs> in the book, he gives this analogy. He says this. He says, what if I were to tell you last night that I was praying and God... God came and met me, and God endued me with the ability to play basketball like Michael Jordan. He just said, you're going to play basketball like Michael Jordan. You're going to have an NBA career. This is my gift to you, my call upon your life. And I told you, God spoke that. God touched my life last night. Well, the next time you and I went to play basketball together, you would expect that my jump shot would be a lot better, that I'd be able to jump a lot higher, that I would be a better athlete. You would expect that, wouldn't you? Because I told you, God met me. God said this to me. And if it didn't happen, if I was the same slow, clumsy guy that I was before, obviously, you'd begin to doubt my profession, wouldn't you? And the same is true in the church. How many people say that they're saved? There should be evidence of it. How many people say they're born again? There should be evidence of it. And if there's not... Well, 
we should doubt and question the profession of their faith. Just, in that, just like that analogy that Francis Chan gives. But you might be asking, well, what does being born again look like? Well, the Bible tells us, what I love about the Word of God, he answers every single question we have. In fact, the Bible gives us five marks of being born again. So if you're taking notes, you want to write down these five things. These five characteristics of being born again. The first is this, found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. 1 John 2, 19. The first mark of being born again is that the person practices righteousness. And it says this, 1 John 2, 29. Did I say 19? 1, 19? I'm sorry. 1 John 2, 29. 1 John 2, 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It's that concept of being born again. He says, hey, this is a mark, this is a characteristic of those who are born again. They practice righteousness. What is righteousness? Not righteousness like the world understands it. Not the standard that the world might have. But it's the standard that God has. It's according to his word. God's standard of what is right. God's standard of what is appropriate. God's standard of how we should live, how we should speak, how we should think, how we should act. This standard right here. Those who are born again practice this. Means that they're biblical. Okay? It means they have a a biblical worldview. It means that they look at the world in which we're in. They look at politics. They look at society. And it's all filtered through this. This is never filtered through society. This is never filtered through politics. All of that is filtered through this. That's the first mark of someone who's born again. The second mark of someone who's born again is 1 John 3, 9. 1 John 3, 9. And that characteristic is one that that person does not practice sin. So they practice righteousness and they do not practice sin. Okay? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. In other words, he does not knowingly, he does not deliberately, he does not habitually practice sin. Okay? So, they practice righteousness. Okay? Secondly, they do not practice sin. Thirdly, they love God's people. That's probably the hardest part. Loving God's people. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. I don't know how many times, and I have been guilty of saying it myself, well, I don't like that person, but I love them. Impossible. It is absolutely impossible. Those who are born again love what God loves. The Bible says he pours out his love in our hearts. God loves his people. And those who are born again love God's people. They love the church. That statement like, you know, I love God and and I, I love Jesus, but, you know, the church, you guys can have it. That's not right. Because those who are born again love God's people. Where are God's people? In his church. Jesus died upon the cross and he gave birth to the church. It's God's full of God's people. Jesus loves the church. God loves his people within his church. And those who are born again, they love God's people. Fourthly, they have an ongoing, enduring faith in God. An ongoing, enduring faith in God. 1 John 5, 4. 
For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Are you born again? Are you born again? And the last mark of someone who's truly born again is they have an ongoing faith that Jesus is the Savior. 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Five marks. Five marks. Practice righteousness. Do not practice sin. Love God's people. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Have an ongoing love for God himself. Are you born again? These are the characteristics of a man. These are the characteristics of a woman that has been regenerated, has been born of God. Do you possess these marks? Are they observable and measurable in your life? J.C. Ryle said this, And now let us solemnly ask ourselves whether we know anything of the mighty change of which we have been reading. Have we been born again? Can any marks of a new birth be seen in us? Can the sound of the Spirit... Oops, I just... Hold on a second. You guys just pray amongst yourselves for a second. We just had a technical difficulty. Here we go. We're back. It's on my left side. I'm right-handed. It's kind of awkward. So, J.C. Ryle says this, And now let us solemnly ask ourselves whether we know anything of the mighty change of which we have been reading. Have we been born again? Can any marks of the new birth be seen in us? Can the sound of the Spirit be heard in our daily conversations? Is the image and subscription of the Spirit discerned in our lives? Happy is the man who can give satisfactory answers to these questions. Guys, regeneration can never begin or be accomplished without one key element. We talked about this at our men's retreat. It's a thing that separated Saul from David. One key element, regeneration can never begin or be accomplished without this one element, and that's repentance. No one is ever born again if there is no repentance. And along with repentance comes the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. These are non-negotiables of being born again. The scriptures teach us that there is no new birth without repentance. Well, what does repentance mean, you ask? It means a change of action. It means making a 180 degree turn, turning from the direction in which you are going, which your life is leading down and saying, that's enough, I don't want this anymore, and making a 180 degree turn in the other direction. And not just making that turn, but purposing in your heart to never look back on this again. To never go back toward this again. In Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about how God the Father has done a certain amount of things to save us. God the Son has done a certain amount of things to save us. God the Holy Spirit has done a certain amount of things to save us. And one of those things that says this, that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That word redeemed in Ephesians chapter 1 is the word apolutrosis. It's a radical word. We understand what redemption is. It's purchasing in order to obtain, right? It's buying. It's a ransom that we pay in order to free something. And we understand that that's the word lutrosis. But this word in Ephesians chapter 1 is a radical word because it's a compound word. Apolutrosis. Lutrosis speaks of ransom, the purchase of another, the purchase from slavery of another. But apo 
is a word when added to latrosis, it changes the meaning significantly because that word literally means that that finished work, that that work was done so completely that whatever connection, whatever relationship existed prior has been forever dissolved. It no longer exists. There is no trace and no connection to that at all. Apolutrosis. That's what Jesus has done for us. And it happens when we first repent. We make a 180 degree turn and we purpose in our heart to say, I'm never going to go back to that ever again. It's a change of action. But it's also a change of mind. Repentance comes from two Greek words. One that means after and the other that means thought or mind. What that means is that those things that used to occupy your thoughts, those things that used to occupy your desires, no longer are the object, no longer are the subject of your thoughts. Those things that you have repented of no longer occupy your mind. Not only is it a thing that you no longer want to do, it's actually something that becomes repulsive to you to do. And where there's repentance, there's change of action. Where there's repentance, there's change of mind. It's not just simply a new direction. It's not just simply an about face. It's not education. It's not even a religious experience. Being born again is a radical change that takes place in a person's life, whereby through repentance and the work of the Holy Spirit, he is given a new nature. Did you know that being born again, I'm going to say something here that might, might wig you guys out a little bit. And just bear with me. Did you know that being born again is not merely asking Jesus into your heart? If that happens without repentance, it will never bring regeneration. It will never bring new life. Listen, if there's, there is no evolution from flesh to spirit. It doesn't exist. You have to. You need to be born again. And let me give you three things to consider. Realize, repent, and receive. If you don't get anything else from this morning, write those things down. Realize, repent, and receive. You must realize that you're a sinner. You must repent. And you must receive the work of the Spirit in your life. You must be born again. That's God's heart for us this morning. There's only two categories of humanity on this planet. We have a tendency to, to see them, to see the world in, in terms of nations and races and genders and cultures and social economic backgrounds, but the reality is there's only two categories of those, of human beings on this world. Those who are under Adam and those who are under Jesus. To be under Adam, you need to be born. To be under Jesus, you need to be born again. J.C. Ryle says this, Heaven may be reached without money. It may be reached without rank. It may be reached without learning. But it's clear as daylight, if words have any meaning, that nobody can enter heaven without the new birth. I'm going to ask the worship team to come, to come up. We're just going to spend some time in prayer, continuing our worship as we sing and pray and enter into communion. I would ask that you guys just bow your heads with me and we'll just spend some time in prayer.
No communion, apparently. Rory always does that stuff to me. <laughs> That's right. So let's just bow our heads for a while. Let's just quiet our hearts before the Lord. Allow the Holy Spirit to just bring the weight of this truth upon our lives, upon our hearts. Close our eyes, bow our heads. The point of verse 8 is that with those who are born again, the effects of the Spirit are visible. There should be some recognizable markers, some characteristics, some evidence both within our own hearts and externally, evidence that's visible and observable by other people. And Jesus wanted something more for this man who came to him that night. He recognized that there was something missing in him. Nicodemus recognized that there was something missing. Sometimes the wind of the Spirit is powerful and it blows like a raging wind. And other times it blows so gently it's almost imperceptible. And I think for Nicodemus that night the winds of the Spirit were blowing hard. Is the wind of God's Spirit at work in your life this morning? Perhaps for some of you here today it's, it's gently blowing and just reaffirming and soothing your soul that you know that you're born again and you're praising God for that. You're so thankful that he saved you. You're so thankful that he's changed you. He's removed from you the heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh, poured out his spirit within you. He's directing you and leading you and you sense his favor upon your life. You've turned from your sin. God's washed you. And you have true life in Jesus. I want to encourage you to praise the Lord this morning for that. To be thankful for that. But for others of us here this morning, the wind of the Spirit is raging right now. And by God's grace, you clearly see the non-negotiables. You see your sin. And you see that you have a need to repent. You desire that the Spirit would rush into your life and make you a new person. You believe that Jesus is the answer. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to respond and to yield your life to him right now. And if that's you today, right here where we sit in this building, with heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to encourage you to lift your life to Jesus by lifting a hand. Just raise your hand right where you sit and say, that's me. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Anyone else here this morning? Don't be like I was that Christmas concert back in 1992 that's thinking, this is silly. This is foolish. Why would anybody do that? You've just sat here this morning and God's spirit has just leaned into you and pressed you against the boards and said, you need this. You will not experience my goodness the way I intend, the way I purpose, where I plan for you. You will not experience the blessedness of my presence in your life. You cannot experience it unless you're born again. 
Anyone else here this morning wants to join this daughter of God over here? Amen. It's you in the middle. Praise God. Anyone else here this morning? Just a few more moments. Jesus said, those who confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Don't let today be a day where that happens. Anyone else here this morning that wants to respond to God? Praise God. I'll see you in the back. I'll see you up here in the front, in the back over here against the wall. Praise the Lord. To my right. Anyone else? For those of you who raised your hand, I want to pray with you. Just a simple prayer. There's no power in this prayer per se, but there's power in the person that we pray to. I want to ask that you would pray this prayer out loud, just loud enough for the person next to you to hear it. You don't have to to scream it out. The Bible does say, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. So just repeat after me, just loud enough for the person next to you to hear it. Father God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you died so that I might live. I recognize that I'm a sinner. And I repent of my sin. Cleanse me, Lord. Make me whole. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Change me that I might know you and follow you. And help me, Lord God, to trust you, to believe that you are God, and that you will lead me and guide me all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. You've been listening to the teaching ministry at Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon, 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.